is one of the most important ideas in, in trying to improve yourself. If you don't understand what I call frame of reference, which sounds... 100%. I mean, yeah, framing exactly is literally everything. Is literally everything. Getting people to understand that. So I just, um, in my NFT journey, uh, I've created this thing called the Life Map people and as I sat there and I'm asking myself like what is the most fundamental thing that if people don't understand this they're never going to be able to make progress it was frame of reference and getting people did you um hear David Foster Wallace's this is water no 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 oh what is my it? god you're gonna you love it, it the you most say it. all right so well it's a whole it's oh, yeah. like right, seven right. minutes long or something okay. uh but the idea is that the fish is the last one to realize that it's in water and so he starts with this joke where, uh, you know, an old fish swims by these two young fish and says, you know, hey, boys, how's the water? And he swims past and they look at each other and go, what's water? And that to me is frame of reference. People don't even realize that they have a frame of reference, let alone that it was a choice, as yep. you said, to choose the lens that you have. Yep. And even if they understand that they have a frame of reference and they choose it, they don't realize how distorted their frame of reference is. And so getting people to understand, okay, everything you think, feel, your dreams, your nightmares, they are all a reflection of your frame of reference. Yep. And your frame of reference has been created over a lifetime, often in invisible moments, in moments of trauma. You're making a decision about what is true about the world. But because you mistake it for objective truth, you don't realize that, oh, I actually decided that the world works this way just now in this moment right here based on this trauma. And you just get all these layers of distortion. And because people aren't aware that they're living inside of that frame of reference, like even just to get to the point where people are like, oh, I see what you're saying. Like it really takes a lot. Yeah. Um... I mean, it reminds me of two different psychologists. One is obviously Adam Grant more recently with his book, Think Again. I think he's spent a lot of time helping, helping you see that your current self just has one frame of reference. Even yourself five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago may have had a slightly different nuanced frame of reference. And so he calls it the joy of being wrong. And that, that again is, I think, one of the appreciations I have about future self is just my current self has just one frame of reference. In, in a week from now, I'm going to have a totally different frame of reference. But um, have you ever heard of Robert Keegan? From you. Okay. But otherwise, no. Okay, so yeah, Keegan was a Harvard psychologist back in the day. He studied like organizational structures and he had a different model. It was similar to Covey's like dependent, independent, interdependent model, but it was a lot more psychological mm. where he talked about how he called it, I think, a socializing self that a lot of people go through high school kids where their whole actions and behaviors are motivated by pleasing others or fitting in or something like that. Then you reach this authoring stage, mm -hmm. which is a lot more competitive where Everything you see is just to further your own aims and your own agendas, but you can't see outside your frame of reference. And so he's, from Keegan's belief and perspective, only 8% of people reach this level that you're talking about where they can actually, he calls it the transforming self, mm. where they start collaborating with people um, and they can see that they have a frame, that other people have frames, and that you can consciously step out of your frame and, and look at different frames of the same situation and you recognize that your frame is just one frame. It's one way of seeing things. Um, it's very limited, very it's very inaccurate, um, but it, that doesn't limit you. You know, then you can try different frames. You can learn different things. You're always seeking to reframe and get new perspective, new angles on the same situation. Kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of like a tennis, tennis player who goes into a lesson actually wanting to learn. You know, it's like that beginner's mind where you can learn something from every situation rather than just, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but from Keegan's perspective, only about 8% of people get to this place 
uh, and organizations where this is just one frame. My future self will see things different. There's a lot of different angles on this. But I think that that's a skill you could practice. No doubt. How? I mean, for me, one is just recognizing that my current self sees things different, again, than my past self 10 minutes ago, and just regularly being open. Uh, I think this is, again, another reason why to journal is just how do I see things? I mean, I, can, I can't ever see from your frame. I could ask you, though, you know, and I could ask you how you see things, and I could be more mm-hmm. curious um, rather than competitive. Like, rather than me trying to prove that my perspective's right, um, actually ask you what you think about it. Um, be more of a curious learner and actually have a more flexible frame. <laughs> frame. Um, for me, I really like referencing back to my past self regularly and just asking myself and actually analyzing like why things turned out the way they did. Like not, not being judgmental towards my former self, not being mad if, a, if a, you know, I get angry at one of my kids. Like rather than being upset about the past, just actually what was the, what was the frame that led me to coming to that conclusion uh, and how do I see things differently? Uh, it allows you to actually squeeze more juice out of things you learn. If I read a book, I can actually analyze how did my frame of reference change or why do I, or can I see things differently because I now have this information. And I think that this is a, an active, like an aspect of learning is if you actually learn something that is a little outside your current frame of reference, are you willing to be honest with that new learning and start to like apply it? Or are you going to reject it and stick with your current, you know, your former way of learning? So I think learning new frames, but then being honest with the new information you get and letting go of old ways is a big aspect of learning. Did you see the movie The Sixth Sense? Yeah, but I have, I have not seen it for probably 20 years, like 15 years. Do you remember the ending, I'm assuming? Maybe. Tell oh us my God. Seriously, okay, dude, it's great. been that long. Dude, it's been that long. All right, well, this <laughs> is fun. This is the perfect example to me of what frame of reference is. So, spoiler alert Good. for anybody oh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, that hasn't seen it, but... The whole movie, it, you're watching it unfold and everything seems normal and you're not thinking anything of it, but this guy keeps having these weird run-ins with like his wife and it just doesn't go the way you're thinking it will go. And then you finally get to the end of the film and you realize that the main character that you've been following this whole time is dead. Yeah, 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 I remember. And he's a ghost. And then they play back little snippets of the movie so that you realize no one ever actually had an exchange with him. You feel like they kind of do, but when you play it, I have the chills right now. And that's frame of reference, where you suddenly see the exact same moments. But when you thought he was alive, you read the interactions one way. When you realize he's a ghost and wasn't actually there, and so they were just having a, you know, a lonely moment where they went to their favorite restaurant on their anniversary to mourn, but because you see it as he's sitting there with them, you read the exchange as this really cold exchange where she's basically ignoring him and sort of dumping him. And that's frame of reference. And it, it can be that profoundly like jarring where you're like, whoa, there is this entirely other oblique angle with which I can look at my life for good, bad, indifferent, whatever. But suddenly like this, these vistas of possibilities open up before you for instance, to bring this back to letting go of what other people think, I think so many people construct their life around, okay, what are they going to think? One, you have to be honest, like you've said multiple times, this is so important. You have to be honest with yourself that you want their approval, seek their approval, or have historically sought their approval, whatever, so that you can now begin to look at the world, what would this look like if I actually didn't care what they thought? 
and how differently would I move and would I act, I think people would often be startled to see the answers if they were journaling honestly, what their life would look like if they didn't worry about their significant other's thoughts, the social media people's thoughts, their parents' thoughts, like that their life would look dramatically, dramatically different. Yeah. Yeah, so many, so many things come to mind. And now I do remember that movie. One thing that uh, I love about that is, is that once you get the new frame, right, it changes everything. In the past, you look back at all the old perspectives now with the new frame. And that's really how memory works. They call memory a reconstruction. Mm. And so like you never actually see the past as it is, but only as your current self perceives it, right? You, you know, the, so there's a really great quote from uh, Brent's life. He wrote a book called Time and Psychological Explanation. You would actually really love it. It's, but basically he said that um, it's more accurate to say that the present causes the meaning of the past than the past causes the meaning of the present. Because, Facts. Yeah, because the present causes the meaning of the past because it's the present frame. And so whenever you pull up a memory, it's from the frame of your current self. Mm. And so you get that new information, like at the end of the movie, boom, it changes the meaning of everything that occurred in the past. And so that, that's, that's one nice part is as you get new information, new perspectives, you actually automatically reframe the whole past from the present. And so any view you have of the past is actually just a reflection of where you're currently at, mm. which is really interesting. In this video, I'm gonna talk about proactively framing 2020 as a positive experience. Now, before I do that, I want to actually share with you a quote. This is a crazy, mind-blowing quote from a psychologist named Brent Slife. And basically in this quote, what he explains is, is that our memories are flexible. Your past is just a story. It's a subjective meaning. There is no objective past that you have. There is no objective 2020. You get to choose the meaning you gave to 2020. And basically, this is what Brent Slife said. He says, our view of the past is shaped by where we're at in the present. It's actually the present that determines the meaning of the past. The past is not what determines what happens in the present. It's actually where you're at in the present, your mental set, your vision, how you see things. Your present determines the meaning of the past and it's all about meaning. Your past is possibility, meaning you can change the meaning. You can give it whatever meaning you want. And so I'm gonna give you an amazing journal exercise that will help you frame 2020 in a very positive way. Before I do that though, I wanna share with you this concept. It's called The Gap in the Gain by Dan Sullivan. This is a book you can get, the link is down below. It's a free ebook. Dan Sullivan is the founder of Strategic Coach. He has coached more successful entrepreneurs than anyone on the planet. And what he says is that if you're in the gap, what that means is that you're measuring yourself against some ideal. So for example, when my kids are served dinner, I've got six kids, when my wife serves them dinner, if they get to the kitchen table and they say, oh, it's not what I wanted, then what they're doing is they're measuring what's there against some ideal that doesn't exist. We do that all the time. So if you're measuring 2020 against some ideal that doesn't exist, then you're gonna be in the gap. Oh, it was a bad year, it wasn't what I wanted, boo-hoo. You're like my kids at the kitchen table. Or you can measure the gain, you can measure your current situation against where you were before. If my kids come to the kitchen table and they realize there's a meal on the table versus before that they didn't have a meal on the table, then they just made progress, they just made a gain and you can appreciate what you've got when you're in the gain, as Dan Sullivan explains. And so you are in the gain when you measure your current self against where you were before. You measure your current self against where you were before. And so one of the things I want to invite you to do is look at where you were at as a person and your situation at the beginning of 2020. So basically it could be sometime in December of 2019. You didn't know all this was going to happen, but just write down in your journal all the things that have changed in your life since the beginning of 2020. I made the list. It was crazy how much I actually did this year. This year I went on over 300 podcasts. I published two books. We had our sixth child. Um, I got a ton of book deals. I also had a lot of setbacks, a lot of unexpected setbacks. Got crazy back pain and knee pain out of nowhere, which is probably mostly just subconscious. 
there's a lot of things that have happened, good and bad, but I can honestly tell you I'm a different person than who I was a year ago, and you're a different person as well. There's two great quotes on this. One comes from Ernest Hemingway, the famous novelist. He said, nobility is not about being better than other people. True nobility is about being superior to your former self. So you need to take the time to actually reflect on how different you are from your current self. Write down all the things that have happened, all the things you've learned, and all the ways in which you're different from the person before. So write down all of 2020, what all happened. There's another great quote from Elaine de Button, the British philosopher. He said, anyone who is not embarrassed by who they were 12 months ago didn't learn enough. And so I, I heavily challenge you right now at the end of this year, and honestly do this at the end of any year, or even at the end of every week or every month, to write down everything that has happened. Write down all the ways in which your life has changed in the last 12 months. And then choose to frame it as a positive year. You're a meaning-making machine. You get to choose whether 2020 was a good year or a bad year. It's your choice how you frame it. There's no objective facts. It's just a meaning. It's a story. The past has possibility, as um, Brent's life would say, my, my famous <laughs> amazing psychologist um, professor. So your past ha is a meaning. It's a story, whatever you tell about it. If you take the time to measure all the progress, all the gains, and if you reflect on how your life has changed and improved since the beginning of 2020, then you're in what Dan would call the gain. And if you're in the gain, then your life is gonna be positive regardless of what happened. If you're in the gap, then you're always comparing yourself against some ideal that doesn't exist, which will never exist, because wherever you are, your ideal is off on the horizon. So you might as well be in the gain. You might as well frame 2020 as an amazing year. That's my invitation to you. Dr. Stephen Covey said, we see the world not as it is, but as we are, or as we've been conditioned to see it. We all have a subjective perspective of the world. None of us see the world objectively. We all have a filter through which we see the world. That filter is our perception. And your perception or your filter determines, number one, what you see, but also how you see it. Two people could look at the same thing but see completely different things because let's just say you see a basketball. If you see that basketball, it then triggers all sorts of memories about basketball to you. Maybe basketball is meaningless to you, but maybe to someone else, basketball is the most important thing. And so you might not even notice the basketball because you're focused on something else. The basketball may be irrelevant to you. So your, your filter determines what you see, but also how you see it. The what you see part is important. In psychology, we call that selective attention. Your filter focuses on what's important to you, but it also determines how you see it, whether you see it as good, bad, important, non-important, relevant, non-relevant. So as an example, you may be driving down the road and you might notice certain cars. You might notice a Tesla, for example. You might notice that because you've trained your brain to focus on that and to give it meaning, how you see it. And so we all have a mental filter. But it's important to realize that that filter is like a vacuum. You're always sucking in experience and information. First off, you're watching this video, but you're also just, even when you're out in the world, your senses are always pulling information in. We are vacuums. We're always sucking in information and the filter determines how that information is processed. But also it's crazy to realize that the information and experiences that constantly come in also reconfigure the filter. The filter is always being changed and adjusted based on what information and experiences are coming in and the meaning we give to those. So social media is a very powerful example of that. There's been a lot of research on this and even a recent documentary called The Social Dilemma. And basically what they found is, is that social media is designed to change your filter. Because you're constantly scrolling, there's messages coming at you that ultimately subtly and slowly over time shift your perception, they shift your goals, they shift your values, they shift your desires. Over time, your desires are shifted. Your belief system is shifted based on what you have coming in. 
And if you're not thoughtful and intentional about the experiences that are coming in and how you filter those experiences, then your worldview and your filter and your desires, your goals, your ambitions, your even your identity, how you see yourself, will slowly be transformed over time. And as your filter transforms, then again, you'll focus on different things, you'll care about different things, but also you'll process things differently. Just as an example, if over time your worldview has shifted, you may now no longer have good feelings towards something that you used to believe in. Maybe you used to believe in God, but now over time your views have changed and now that idea is filtered as a negative. And so now you filter that and people that are associated with religion or people that are associated with a particular political party as negative and bad. So as your filter changes, not only do you see different things that your former self didn't see, you pay attention and you notice things that weren't you didn't see before, but also it determines how you see and frame those things and the meaning you give. And so our filters are constantly being adjusted and changed. We can't, we can't stop that, it's a slow boil. And so we are a vacuum. We're constantly sucking things in, but the way to live an intentional life is to start to ask yourself, what filter do I want? There's a great quote from Marshall Goldsmith. Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is a performance psychologist. And he says, if you do not control your environment, then your environment will control you. So if you're not controlling the inputs that are coming in, if you're not thoughtful about the inputs that are coming in, then you're being unintentional about your environment and your environment is ultimately shaping you. Because again, we're vacuums. We're always sucking in experience. We're always sucking in information. And whatever we consistently input will shape our output. There's a great quote from Zig Ziglar. He actually said, your input determines your outlook and your outlook determines your performance. Your outlook is your perception. Your outlook is your view of the world. And your inputs, the consistent inputs coming in that we're constantly sucking in, shape our output. That is why social media is so interesting is social media is literally designed to change your goals, to change your desires. And so you have to be aware of your inputs. You have to be aware of the information, the people around you, because we're constantly adapting our worldview based on what's around us. That's actually why they say that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with is because the people you're around, you adjust to them and you start to want what they want. You start to desire what they want. You start to see the world as they see it. The first thing you should really think about right now is yes, you have a filter. That filter is not the objective world. How you see things is just more a product of who you are than, what you're, than the world itself. What, whatever you focus on expands. And so you have to ask yourself, what filter do you want? This is the most powerful aspect of your agency as a human being, is that you get to decide your filter. You get to decide how you wanna modify it. You might say, well, I want my filter to be able to see and focus on amazing opportunities. Maybe I wanna be more kind and more empathetic, more caring. Maybe I wanna know how to make more money. Maybe I want to X, Y, and Z. You get to decide what you focus on. There's a great concept actually called the five hour rule. And the five hour rule is the idea that all high performers, all innovative people, they spend at least five hours per week learning, actively learning things that they want to know. And when you're actively learning, what you're doing is you're intentionally reshaping your filter. You're intentionally changing your worldview. You're intentionally learning things that your former self didn't know. So if you wanna get really good at finance, for example, or if you wanna get really good at fitness, or if you wanna really get really good with people, or if you wanna understand religion, if you wanna understand, you actively learn those things that you wanna understand and you are the one who reconfigures your filter. And once you've changed your view of the world, then everything that comes in is processed differently. Because now you have a different filter that sees the world differently, it focuses on different things. Just think about yourself as an example. What are some of the things that you're focused on and that you care about that your former self would never have noticed and didn't care about, they were ignorant of it? Bitcoin is a funny example. 
because a lot of people are now hyper aware of that and hyper focused on that. Whereas maybe a year, three, four, five years ago, it was there, but they weren't focused on it. They weren't thinking about it. They weren't actively measuring it. And so basically it's your choice what filter you want to create. And as an intentional human being, it's up to you to actively shape not only your worldview, but to shape your perception, to shape your desires, to shape your goals, and to shape your identity. You're always gonna be vacuuming in experiences, but you gotta say, what are the experiences or what's the information I want to be vacuuming in into my world so that I can configure my, my perception and configure myself, configure, configure my worldview, configure me as a person, and you can do that. You do that by actively learning, but choosing what you want to learn, rather than just being a ping pong ball and being reactive like most people, just randomly scrolling and being unconscious about what's shaping the filter, you wanna be conscious about it. There's a great quote from James Clear. James Clear talks about how ideas are downstream from environment, and that's true. Environment is the thing that is basically coming into you. It's the thing that you're vacuuming in, it's your experiences, it's, it's what's around you, it's, it's your inputs. And those then shape your outlook. They shape your ideas. And so if you wanna be intentional, you gotta think what kind of inputs do I want? What do I really wanna learn? What do I wanna become a master of? You can become a master of anything, but you need to start shaping the inputs. You need to start shaping the external world that you're learning and start actively putting your attention on what you want to learn. And as you do that, you will change your perspective. You'll change your worldview. You'll change what you see and you'll change how you see it. You could become a, a lot more empathetic of a person. Maybe you'll train yourself to see and notice people who need help. Because right now, maybe you don't even notice that. And so you get to decide, what do I want to pay more attention to? What do I want to get better at? What do I want to have finer distinctions about. There's a great quote from Robert Kiyosaki. He says that intelligence is the ability to make finer distinctions. Finer distinctions means that you're, it's like a camera lens. You, you've, you've, you've sharpened the lens, you've gone to a finer grade and you can see things like zoomed in more clearly. Whereas in the past, it was a fuzzy image or you didn't even notice it. Now you can zoom right in on it and you can see things that you didn't see before. So who do you want to be? How do you want to see the world? How do you want to train your worldview? You're always taking in inputs. We're vacuums. We're always sucking in experience. And whatever experiences we have are shaping us as a person. They're shaping our goals, our desires. And if you are an intentional human being, you want to start thinking, who's the person I want to become? And what kind of inputs do I need to start becoming that person, seeing the world that way um, and, and living in the world that way? None of us see the world as it is. We all see the world as we are. And it's up to us to determine who we want to be and then to shape the experiences and the information to actively learn in ways and have peak experiences and have peak learning to ultimately to shape ourselves and our perspective in a certain way. It's up to you how you see the world. It's up to you what you seek. It's up to you to modify your filter to the world, which is your perception, which is basically how you see the world and how and who you are as a person. Seth Godin said, you see whatever it is you're measuring. As people, we're all measuring something. You're measuring, it could be your checking account, it could be you know your favorite team score, it could be Pokemon cards, it could be fantasy football, it could be Bitcoin. Whatever you're measuring actively is what you see. And whatever you see, in large part, is who you are. You are however you see the world. As Stephen Covey said, you don't see the world as it is, but as you are. And whatever you're measuring is what you see. So this is just a really cool picture created by the culture design gaping void. But if you wanna change how you see the world, you gotta change what you're measuring. You could decide what you wanna measure. And also you want to define quality metrics. So whatever it is you're measuring determines what you see and how you see the world, but also whatever it is you're measuring determines your process. And your process is how you go about life. So one of the things you wanna do is define what is the most important metric 
that will help me get to my goal. Gary Keller says, what's the one thing that if I accomplish it will make everything else in my life easier or unnecessary? So a lot of people, they're pursuing too many goals. That's the 80-20 principle is, is that 80% of your results come from 20% of what you do. So rather than having 10 goals, you actually wanna have one or two, the right metrics, which make the biggest difference. What's the metric that if you focused on and actually grew and got better at would help you achieve everything else you're trying to accomplish? So it's not only about what you're measuring, but what is the actual metric? <laughs> and so one of the things that I love about Grant Cardone in his book, The 10X Rule, he says, take whatever your goal is and make it 10 times bigger, because when you make it 10 times bigger, that will immediately change what you're required to do. Dan Sullivan actually said that 10 times bigger goals are easier for than two times goals, and they're actually better for the brain. And so, not only do you see what you're measuring, but you're, whatever you're measuring or, or striving to create is shaping your process in the present. And so you wanna take whatever target you want, make sure it's the right target, and then make it 10 times bigger, because not only will that change what you see, it'll change how you learn. One of the things that Kobe Bryant said is once he decided what he wanted, the whole world became his classroom. Then he could actually take information and apply it to his goal. He could also create a filtering system where anything that doesn't relate to your metric you just ignore, you get rid of it and you just focus on your own game, not competing against anyone else. You're just trying to create your own goal. And so define what you want, define what matters to you, define what you're gonna track, cause that'll help you focus, but also set your goal 10 times bigger and that will change how you go about getting there. It'll change your process, it'll change your system. Hope that helps. I love this quote, you see whatever it is you're measuring. I'm Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Please like this video if it helped. Take just one, two, or three metrics, no more than that. Make maybe one of them 10 times bigger and then find ways, better ways of getting there. Winners find ways, as Joe Polish would say. Whatever you say yes to, that's what you are and that's what you'll become. Right now you're saying yes to this video and every second of every single day you're saying yes to something. The question is, are you saying yes to things that are worth anything? Right now you say yes to things that you used to say no to. Just like you say no to things you used to say yes to. For example, I used to say yes to playing World of Warcraft for 12 hours a day. I was back when I was like 18, 19 years old. My current self no longer say yes, says yes to that. I'm not the same person I was in the past and you're not the same person. You used to say yes to things that you now say no to. But your future self's the same way. Your future self has said no to things that you're still saying yes to. It could be an addiction. It could be scrolling Facebook all day. It could be eating junk food. There's a quote from Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar said, whatever comes in goes out. Your input shapes your outlook. And so whatever you're saying yes to, whatever you're consuming in the form of media, experiences, whatever you're saying yes to, that's what you become. And whatever you become, that's what shapes your future performance, your future results. So the question is, what is your future self saying yes to that you're not saying yes to yet? Your future self may be saying yes to amazing opportunities. There's that whole idea that there's gold coins and bronze coins and silver coins all over the place, but most people walk right over the gold coins because they're so focused on the, the bronze coins. They're saying yes to those things. And so that takes me to a poem I'm gonna share with you. It's a poem that was written in the 1800s. It's amazing. So it's by Jesse Rittenhouse. The poem is called My Wage. I bargained with life for a penny and life would pay no more. However, I begged at evening when I counted my scanty store. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask. But once you have set the wages, why you must bear the task. I worked for a menial's hire only to learn dismayed that any wage I had asked of life 
life would have paid. And I can tell you that's 100% true. Whatever you're saying yes to, that's what you're gonna get out of life. You don't have to say yes to what you're saying yes to, but you have to actually question what you're currently accepting in your life. The relationships you're accepting, the amount of money you're accepting, the way you spend your time, the way you, you know, the treat your body. There's a really good quote <laughs> that I also love. It comes from Elaine de Button. And he said, essentially, if you're not embarrassed of who you were 12 months ago, you didn't learn enough. And so what were you saying yes to a year ago that you now say no to? That, that would be a, an amazing signal of growth. And it, it's good. It's good to take the time to look back on your former self and realize you're not the same person. As Ernest Hemingway said, true nobility is not being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is about being superior to your former self. So it's good to see that a year ago, you were saying yes to things that you now say no to. The question is though, is what are you saying yes to? Are you focused on those bronze coins? Are you so, because whatever you focus on expands. And in, in psychology, there's that whole idea of selective attention. Our, our brains can only consciously focus on what we target our energy towards. And, and what we're targeting our energy towards is our goals. Whatever, in, whatever outcomes we're trying to produce, every human action is to produce an outcome. And if your outcome is to produce bronze coins, that's what you're gonna see. We see through tunnel vision. <laughs> it's called selective attention in psychology. We, it's, it's, it's the reason why when you're driving on the road, you can see other people driving the same car as you, but you can't see the 500 other cars. Our brains just, it's, it's all going in, but we can only consciously focus on what we're looking for, what we want. And so if you're looking for bronze coins, that's what you'll find. If you're looking for a penny a day, that's what you'll find. But if you start saying yes to better and better things, then you have to start saying no to other things. Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach, which is the number one entrepreneurial coaching company in the world, he's got this amazing idea. He said, every jump you've had in your life comes when, you, when you've rejected something that you used to accept. So think about it. What are some of the things you used to accept, whether it be um, bad relationships, whether it be various activities, addictions, um, ways you spent your time. What are things you used to say yes to that you rejected? They could be ideas. A long time ago, I rejected the idea that I was ever going to work a normal nine to five job. I just rejected that idea. But here's the, the idea is that there's a plenty of things that the current version of you is accepting that your former or sorry, that your future self has rejected. Your future self rejected those things for better things. And they're saying yes to better things, probably uh, less, but better things. And if you're trying to do too many things at once, then you're not saying yes to the right things. There's just a few things in life that matter. And actually in the amazing book, Who Moved My Cheese? The author talks about how the more life experience you have and also the more pain you get, hard lessons, the more you realize that there's only a few things in life that really matter. And it's sometimes your hardest failures, your most difficult moments that help you realize that you should stop saying yes to certain things because certain things you're saying yes to are literally not worth your time. And there's, and so life experiences and also failures show you what you should say yes to. And here's my invitation to you. Say yes to the things that are of most value long-term, the things that your future self will value. So what are the things your future self will value in 20, 30 years from now? Say yes to those things. Say no to the things that are obviously going to dis destroy or distract, you know, take away from your future self. But also, we live in an amazing world of opportunity. Right now, there are plenty of, there's, so, there's an, a mass amount of opportunity. Actually, there's a book called The Paradox of Choice that explains that because there's so many choices, now we have paralysis by analysis or, or decision fatigue. There's so many choices that lead us to question all of our decisions. But here's the thing. 
there are small ponds with small opportunities and there's big ponds with big opportunities. Now, whatever you say yes to, that's what's gonna create your opportunity. Whatever relationships you say yes to, that's what's gonna create your potential and opportunity. We as people are not floating entities. We become what we surround ourselves with. We become um, what we focus on and what we say yes to. And so certain, certain opportunities and certain people, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Uh, I can say that I've spent a lot of time and energy invested in certain pursuits and I realized I hit the cap very quickly. And so I, I realized I could keep just saying yes and yes and yes to that thing, or I could just realize, all right, there's not much bang for that buck. And so you want to invest your time and energy on things that make bang for the buck. As one example, one of the things that Seth Godin talked about when it comes to work is that you can do work where you do it once and you get paid once. Or you can do work where you do it once, but you get paid for the rest of your life. Like for example, me writing a book. I wrote this book once. Yeah, it took a long time, but I wrote it, but I'm gonna get paid for this book for the rest of my life. And so what are a few things you, what are the things you can do that will actually make a long-term difference? But also from the perspective of the 80-20 rule, what are the few things that if you say yes to will make a 10 times impact? As the 80-20 rule says, 80% of results come from 20% of what you do. And so if you're saying yes to like the 80% of things that only produce 20% of results, then you're only gonna get 20% of results. If you say yes to only those things that get 80% of results, then your results are gonna go higher. And so really it's a matter of standards. Are you willing to only say yes to things that are of highest value, or are you gonna to continue to say yes to things that aren't of high value? You are what you say yes to and life will basically pay you whatever wage you ask for it. So what are you gonna ask of life and where are you gonna focus your attention and who's your future self gonna be? In 2007, two psychologists published a study that changed the game. It changed how we view the interaction between the mind and the body. And it actually showed that the body very much influences and shapes the mind. So in this study, they were, there were 84 women that were studied. These women worked at hotel rooms and they were the ones who cleaned the hotel rooms. And so what the study did is it broke these 84 women into two, into two groups. Group one, these women were actually told, did you know that the work you're doing is actually, it actually qualifies according to the, these various metrics for being exercise. The work you're doing is very high exercise and it's very impressive work you're doing and it, it actually is helping you become more and more fit. So this group one of women was told that the work they were doing was exercise and that they should see it as exercise and then group two was told nothing. They, they were just told nothing. And essentially what the researchers were trying to do is see if the women's perception in group one, if their belief that the work they were doing was exercise would change how their body experienced their work. Because your mind, you know, the interpretation of your mind, your perception of an event shapes how your body metabolizes that event. And so they want to see, is there going to be a difference in group one and group two after four weeks where one group, these people actually change their view of their work and they see it and frame it as exercise. Here's what's amazing is the women in group one after four weeks and they didn't change their behavior. They just changed how they viewed their behavior. Their bodies changed. Their BMI, their body mass index got less. Their blood pressure went down. They became healthier. Their hip to waist ratio literally changed. They became fitter, healthier, had a better physique. They had less stress, less body fat. And so literally just by viewing their behavior as exercise and doing the same thing over four weeks, group A, their bodies changed. They became more healthy. And so what this study showed 
is that in a lot of ways, there's a placebo effect in, in place with exercise. If you believe that something is exercise and that it's making you healthy, it's gonna change how your body experiences it. There's other research as well that shows that if you're stressed out, for example, you're about to give a public speech, if you actually frame it as I'm excited rather than that I'm scared, then your body calms down. Excitement is a different framing than being nervous. And so you can change how you frame an event. There's actually one other crazy study that I'm gonna share with you. And then I'm gonna break down how you can ultimately use this knowledge to better frame your experiences so that your body and brain metabolize those experiences in a better way. Because often the language we use and the way we frame our experiences actually makes us more and more exhausted. If, you're, if you think, for example, that something is very taxing, it costs you lots of energy, it's exhausting, then your body's gonna receive that as such. So this next study is absolutely crazy. It's called Mindsets Over Milkshakes. And basically what the researchers wanted to do was to see how does a person's view of a milkshake determine how their body reacts to it and also how their mind reacts to it? So they broke the participants into two groups. And in group one, they, group one was told basically that the milkshake that they were drinking was 620 calories, it was very indulgent, it was high in fat. Whereas group two, group two was told they had a sensible milkshake. It was 120 calories, nutritious. And so both of these groups, they got a milkshake, it had labels. One was, oh, this is indulgent, 600 calories, 620 calories. Group two, 120 calories. In reality, both of them had the same milkshake. But basically the study was gonna say, how does the interpretation of the milkshake influence their body and also their actual perception, uh, influence their mind? And so how they studied that was that they gave three blood tests to the people throughout the study. They first, before they even, before the participants even knew about the milkshakes or knew what milkshake they were getting, they got a blood test. And in the study, they were testing uh, a peptide in their blood called ghrelin. Ghrelin tells your brain whether or not you're hungry or not. So if you're hungry or you feel like you've got low energy, your blood sends ghrelin to your brain and it says, hey, I'm hungry, let's get some food. Whereas if you're full or you've got lots of energy, Ghrelin doesn't go to your brain, which tells your brain, okay, I don't need food. And so they wanted to test ghrelin levels at different times for these people. So at time one, they ultimately take a blood test. And then after the first blood test, they showed the participants their milkshakes and just had them look at the milkshakes and rate what they thought would happen with the milkshake, if they were gonna get full or not, or if they thought it was gonna be tasty. After both groups got the milkshake, then they got another blood sample. And then after the second blood sample, they were told to drink the milkshakes within 10 minutes of the blood sample. Again, group A believes that the milkshake is 620 calories, high in fat, indulgent. Group B thinks it's only 120 calories and that it's sensible, it's light, it's nutritious. And so they both consume the milkshake. And again, these are obviously people who are separated. It's not like they were consuming these at the same time. But here's what's crazy is when they actually tested the people's blood after the milkshakes, the people who consumed the milkshake that they believed was 620 calories. And again, both groups actually consumed the same milkshake. I think it was 380 calories, what they actually consumed, but they both thought they were consuming something very different. The people who thought they consumed something that was 620 calories, high in fat, very over the top indulgent, their ghrelin levels were way lower than the group that only consumed one that they thought was 120. In other words, their body interpreted the event differently because they thought it was 620 calories. Also, they were asked to fill out surveys of how hungry they were and stuff. And the people who consumed the one that they thought was 620 calories high in fat, they believed in their head that they were way more full, way less hungry than the people who only consumed one that was 120 calories. So not only on the mind level, 
did the people who consumed the, the milkshake that was indulgent, not only did they think that they were more full, but their body was responding as if they were more full. Literally, they had lower ghrelin levels in their body. And so there's a, an entire field called epigenetics. Epigenetics is basically the field showing that your DNA, yes, we all have a certain level of DNA that we're born with, but the genes that are actually expressed are based on our environment and based on our interpretation of that environment. And so the way you frame an event determines how your body and your brain utilize that event or metabolize that event. And so it's crazy when you actually realize this because it, re it makes you realize that the way you frame experiences determines how long you'll live, as an example. There's a lot of research, for example, on happiness and about how happiness leads to longevity. There was a study, for example, that followed a group of nuns. I think it was 120 nuns for 80 years to see why some of them lived a lot longer than others. And these nuns were in the same environment doing the same behaviors. And they went back and they looked at the nuns when they were in their 20s. These nuns, all of them were required to fill out kind of an autobiographical sketch of themselves, like to write about themselves. And what they found is, is that the nuns who wrote about themselves in a very positive way and wrote about life in a positive way and wrote about their expectations of being a nun in a positive way, those are the ones that ultimately lived 10 years often, an average of 10 years longer than the nuns who were more pessimistic or just more neutral in their tone. And so what's crazy is, is that these 120 nuns, they were all having the same experiences, but they were interpreting those experiences differently. The ones that were positive, that were happy, that were interpreting their experiences in a positive way, their body was less taxed by their experiences than the ones who were like pessimistic. And so if you're always making things out to be difficult or hard or challenging, you're framing your body to receive it as such. That's why stress kills your body and stress in a lot of ways is based on your interpretation of something. So to take all this and make it extremely practical, how you perceive an event determines how your body receives and basically metabolizes the event. If you're constantly saying you're exhausted, tired, stressed, if you believe that this is gonna be really hard or painful, then your body's gonna receive it that way. If, in other words, you shift the perception that you're healthy, that you're fit, that you're getting lots of rest, that you're getting lots of recovery, that this is gonna be okay, that you can handle this, you want to have positive interpretations of your events. You want to be in what Dan would call the gain, where you're feeling good, you're seeing progress, you're appreciating your progress. You feel great about what you're doing. You want to ultimately shape your perception, shape your lens so that your body receives these things in less taxing ways. It's insane. You've got to shape your mental filter. You've got to shape your perception and you've got to control the meaning you give to experiences because if you give harsh or negative meanings, your brain is literally gonna shape your body in a negative way. You're gonna tax yourself more than you need to. It's just like the milkshake. The people who thought it was 620 received it physically and mentally different than the people who thought it was 120. So you've gotta be the one to be really thoughtful about the meanings you give to experiences. You gotta be thoughtful about the self-talk you have in your head. The more positive you are, Positive emotions are very powerful. Obviously, that's not to say you should ignore negative emotions. You wanna be mindful of where you're at, but you wanna be good at framing your emotions. You wanna be good at being with people who uplift you. How you frame an event determines how your body receives it. It's up to you to frame things in a way that will help you. I know a lot of people, as an example, a lot of entrepreneurs who keep telling themselves, I'm so, so tired, so tired. And I used to be in that same trap. I always felt tired after my work and I'd go home and I'd be exhausted. Whereas now I feel so much more vital, so much more alive. Um, not only am I sleeping better, and I expect to sleep better, but I'm telling myself I'm energized. I'm telling myself that my work doesn't exhaust me. I'm telling myself that I've got lots of energy. I feel alive, I feel energetic, but a lot of it's just because I simply changed my frame around it. And you have that ability as well. 
Your identity is the story you tell about yourself, and the story you tell about yourself determines your behavior and it determines your outcomes. And so how you see yourself and how you explain yourself ultimately is the thing that shapes your behavior and your behavior over time is what creates your habits and creates your outcomes. And so if you want to change your life, you have to start by changing your identity. And to do that, you have to start by changing your story. And to change your story, you ultimately wanna change a few things. You wanna change the story of your past, but also you wanna get very clear about the story of your future. Now, most people's past is a very limiting view. Their past, we all have traumas, we all have horrible things we've gone through, and those little traumas or the big traumas can really shape our identity. They can really lead us to having a negative view of ourselves. So ultimately what you wanna do if you wanna upgrade your identity is you have to transform your story of your past and transform your story of your future. Because as people, our current self, who we are in the present is largely shaped by our view of the past and our story of the past and also our view of the future and our story of the future. To be really powerful in the present, you need two things. You need an exciting, compelling future and you need a really powerful, positive past. And by positive, what I mean is, is that it's a positive meaning you've given to it. You're the one who determines the meaning of your past and your past is largely a meaning. As the psychologist Brent Slife has said, the past is not what determines the meaning of the present. It's actually the present that determines the meaning of the past. So who you are right now, you get to shape the meaning of your past. If you've got a horrible experience you went through as a child or even more recently, it's up to you to give that meaning. One of my mentors, Dan Sullivan, he really can learn and grow from his experiences because rather than being in what he calls the gap, which is where you're comparing your situation or you're comparing what happened to what an ideal that you wish it was, instead of doing that, you just look at the gains. You look at the gains. And so you could have a setback or you could go through a horrible experience. You could get hit by a car and become paralyzed. And then you can either be resentful of that. You can be upset because that situation isn't what you wanted it to be. You're comparing it to an ideal that doesn't exist or you can just immediately turn it into a gain and look at how can, you, how can you learn from this? How can you benefit from this? Dan is someone I love because he learns so fast from his experiences. He actually has a quote where he says, always make your learning greater than your experience. Most people, they've got way more experience than they have learning. They're not learning from their past. They're not utilizing their past. They're still resenting their past. They're still in the gap about their past. They're still wishing their past was different than it was. And so that makes them a victim. You're a victim when you're, upset about your past and when you're still viewing your past from what Dan would call the gap where you've defined it in a negative way. There is no good or bad, only what you choose to define it. You're the one who shapes your perception and here's what's crazy. There's a lot of research on this. Your memory is very flexible and fluid. And so you get to choose the meaning of your past and you get to tell a new story. As an example, my father was a drug addict when I was growing up. But, and, and for a long time I was in the gap. I was upset about my situation and I was comparing my situation to what I wish it was. Why is my life the way it is? If you're complaining and upset about how something went and you're still wishing it was different, then you're in the gap. You're comparing what happened to some ideal that doesn't exist or you're comparing it to someone else and ultimately that's gonna rob you of joy. Instead, the only thing you can do is frame it in a positive way. Choose to look at the positives, choose to look at the gains, choose to actually learn from your experience and utilize it. Choose to frame it in a positive way. There's a great book called Too Soon Old, Too Late Smart by Gordon Livingston. He was a grief therapist. And one of the things he said is, is that the narratives that we have are not fixed. They're constantly being revised. We're constantly revising our view of the past based on where we're at in the present. 
And it's up to us if we have a positive past or a negative past. It's also up to us if the characters in our lives, such as our friends or our parents, if we frame them as villains or if we frame them as heroes. It's totally up to us, the meaning we give and the narrative we tell. But whatever narrative you tell of your past and also the narrative you tell of your future, that's what shapes your identity. And again, in order to have a very functioning and very powerful present, you need a positive past and you need a really exciting, compelling future. Because as people from a psychology standpoint, the past and the present and the future are all happening right here and now. Your view of the past is shaping how you feel in the present and your view of your future is shaping how you feel, feel in the present. And your identity should be really clearly, powerfully narrated in the past where you're talking about all the experiences you had from a, a gain perspective, as Dan would say. You're talking about the gains, the positives, how you can use that experience and how you're ultimately grateful for it. And that's how you know you've overcome a trauma, by the way, is when you've shifted it from a gap where you're saying what it, where you're still resentful towards the past and you're still wishing it was something else to a gain perspective where you're ultimately grateful that the experience happened. And you believe that because that experience happened, you're ultimately going to be better off because of it. You've chosen to stop being upset and to stop thinking that life's unfair and instead you're just radically grateful and you're the one who creates the narrative you're the one who creates the meaning so you might as well create meaning that benefits you you might as well create meaning that empowers you and that meaning is where you're grateful you're happy you're appreciative that it occurred because now you can now you know much better you've gained a lot you've gained a lot of wisdom you've gained a lot of strength and you're a lot stronger and more powerful as a result you're a lot more flexible you now know things your former self didn't know, so you can now make better decisions than your former self could have ever made. Your former self was way more naive than your current self. You're stronger than your former self. And so ultimately, your past is something that you want to have positive feelings towards, grateful feeling towards. You wanna see it from the gain, not the gap. But when it comes to your future self, which is far more important, that's where your identity should be based. Your future self is what matters even more than your former self. You want a positive past that you can learn from, that you can grow from, that you can build off of, but your future self is the thing that's ultimately driving you. And you're the one that defines your future self. You're the one who gets to decide who your future self's gonna be, what your future self's circumstances are gonna be, what they're gonna focus on, what they're gonna pay attention to, what matters to them. And the more you clarify and think about your future self, the more proactive, the more thoughtful, the more intentional you can be in the present, the more meaningful, the more purposeful you can be. If you don't have goals, if you don't have a clear future self, then what are you going to do in the present? You've got no direction. You've got no purpose. And as Viktor Frankl wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning, if you don't have clarity and purpose and meaning in your life, then the present becomes pretty pointless. It actually becomes very painful to be in the present if you don't have meaning and purpose and something to strive for. As Viktor Frankl said, what man needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal. Where the research in positive psychology has gone is a concept known as prospection. And what prospection says is that whatever view you have of your future, that's the thing shaping your identity and your behavior, your attitudes, and everything going on with you in the future. So you have to be the one that shapes your view of your future self. And the more specific you get, then the more measurable progress you can make. And then as you make measurable progress, you can look back and you can be in the gain and you can really appreciate your progress, which increases your confidence, excitement, and motivation. So who is your future self? You get to decide that. But once you've defined your future self, then in order to really solidify it as your identity, you need to start making that your new narrative. You need to start telling people about your goals. There's actually a really powerful video of a guy who weighed like 500 pounds and he got inspired to lose weight. And so he went public. He shared a video of himself on a scale with no shirt on, literally 500 pounds. And he posted on 
on social media because he knew that if he made it public, he'd feel social pressure. There's also a concept in psychology called the principle of consistency. And basically what it says is, is that we as people really need to be aligned in our behaviors, our thoughts, and our, and our identity. And so he really wanted to identify with himself as a, as a fit person. And so in order to kind of boost his desire to be consistent with a desired future self, he went public. He shared his goals public. He shared a picture of himself with no shirt on publicly. And then he shared his whole journey publicly. And that then helped solidify his identity because he was telling people about his future self. And when you start telling people about your future self and about who you really want to be and you start being open about your goals, you start to then feel compelled to be consistent with that new story. We're always consistent with the story we tell about ourselves. So you might as well be consistent with the story of your future self, the person you really want to be. You have to define that though. A lot of research shows that to boost your optimism, you need to ultimately define out and clarify your best possible or your future self. So do that. Get really specific. Who is your future self? What have they accomplished? What have they achieved? What does their life look like? What do their circumstances look like? How much money do they make? Get really specific about your future self. By the way, this isn't just some psychology mumbo jumbo. People use this all the time. I mean, even Matthew McConaughey, when he gave his speech in 2014, I think he won it, the Academy Award for Best Actor, he talked about how he's always chasing his future self 10 years into the future. My hero's always 10 years away. I'm never gonna be my hero. I'm not gonna attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. He's always chasing his future self and he even said that his future self is his hero. You always wanna have something to chase and this doesn't mean you don't appreciate the present. It actually increases your mindfulness and your confidence and your hope. You have a much better present experience when you've really appreciated the progress you've made, you're really framing your past in a gratitude perspective and you have purpose towards your future. This isn't like you're not living in the present, it's actually how you live powerfully in the present. And so that's how identity works, is it's up to you. It's the story you tell, it's the meaning you give, and then it leads to behavior. If you're still viewing your past from the view of the gap where you're still upset about it, you're still wishing it was something else, then you're resentful towards your past. You're a victim. And so you're gonna not have a big view of your future because you're gonna be justifying having a small future because you're still so upset about the past. You're letting the past be the reason why you're unwilling to change. And you're using it as justification for why you should be a victim. And I'm not saying that bad things haven't happened to you. Bad things, I'm sure challenging things have happened to you. But to use the past as the excuse why you can't move forward is ultimately just, it's not about the past, it's about how you're framing it. It's about the meaning you're giving to it and it's about the identity that you have which is crippled because you're still locked into a, a gap-focused view where you're defining the past as something that you wish it wasn't versus being grateful for what you learned and framing it all as a gain. That you learned a lot, that you're empowered because of it and that you now get to triumph over that and you get to now choose your future because of that. You then make your learning greater than your experience so you don't have to keep repeating your experience. There's a great quote that says, lessons are repeated until learned. And a lot of people don't learn lessons because they're still repeating the same experience because they're still framing it as a negative and they're not actually absorbing it. So you, you wanna have a past that you've learned from and that you can grow from regardless of what it was. And then you want a future that gives you purpose and meaning and something to strive for that then you then tell people about, you then get accountability around, you get systems around, you get an environment around, and you start removing the things that would stop you from being your future self. You start surrounding yourself with people who will help you become your future self. You start getting mentors because you have specific goals. You've got very specific targets that you're trying to create. You've got a view of your future self 
that is tangible, that's having experiences. You know, it could be whatever you want viewing your future self. But once you've defined it, you need to make it measurable, tangible. Like, for example, running a marathon in a certain number of hours, you know, a certain number of hours, having a certain amount of money, um, having a certain lifestyle or a certain schedule or certain types of relationships. The more visual and the more tangible you can make it, then you can start studying the craft of how to get there. That's again called deliberate practice. You can study how to get there and you can start to observe people who are already where you want to be in many respects. Obviously, you're going to have your own unique view of the future, but you can start studying and learning from people who have created similar outcomes in their lives. So your identity is very powerful. Your identity is far more powerful than your personality. Your personality is actually the byproduct of your identity. Your identity shapes your behavior and your behavior over time becomes your personality. So you can shape the future personality of yourself by deciding who your identity is now and acting in that way. And then you are what you repeatedly do, as Aristotle said. One of the questions I'm regularly asked is, what are the key routines to put into place if you want to continuously upgrade your life? So the first one I think, and this one's not that complicated actually, but very few people actually do it. And even sometimes I go like days, weeks without doing it. And then I'll sit and just do it once and immediately I will see the benefits. And that's taking five minutes at night to journal. So in the book, The Gap and the Gain, Dan and I have a full chapter on this. At the end of your day, rather than scrolling through social media, it is so beautiful to put your phone on airplane mode, pull out your journal and just journal for five minutes. And there's really only a few things that you need to do in this journaling session. You write down all of the things that are positives from that day. You write down the actual events that occurred. I literally list them as bullets. Uh, I go for writing three wins, three wins being three things that I either learned, experienced, or made progress towards my goals on. Just three wins from the day. Yesterday, as an example, I wrote down, you know, that me and my, my two oldest kids spent some time together. We went and did like a more spiritual event together. We also went and got some ice cream together. I mean, you just literally make a list of the things that happened that day and the positive outcome you got out of that. Even if, for example, things fell apart and you didn't get what you wanted, you could still write down what you learned from that. And so that would be a win. Maybe just spend the first half of this five minute session, just writing down the things that happened that day in bullet fashion, and also write down why those are wins or just writing them down is enough, honestly. The second thing you do is just write down the three things that are the most important that you could accomplish the next day. The reason this is really helpful is because at the end of your day, your brain is a lot more analytical. Your journaling in the morning is gonna be very different. I would say your journaling in the morning is a lot more creative, whereas your journaling in the evening is a lot more contemplative, analytical. But you can also do some good planning at night just by writing down the three most important things. And it's, it's, it's actually really beneficial to do that right after you've just written down your wins from the day. First off, this quantifies your past. It makes your day more concrete. A lot of people, if they ask, if I were to ask you, for example, what happened yesterday, you might not say that many things. In other words, the past is a blur. The day is a blur. How was your day? It was okay. But when you actually get specific and concrete and list the things that did happen, now you've actually given it structure, form, narrative. Now you've actually given it an arc and you've clarified it, you've defined it. And that actually immediately swings to a more defined tomorrow. You're getting better at crystallizing, defining your past, 
and crystallizing and defining your future. It allows you to become more specific and measurable, which allows you to be a lot more intentional, a lot more intelligent. Actually, Aristotle talks about final cause and that everything that humans do is toward an end. The more specific and measurable you get towards the ends you want, the more actually intentional your behavior can be. The more intelligent you become, the more intentional you are about what you do, the more you're less reactive. So this first one is really big. And I just, I could not, I could not stress this more. I really encourage you to do it, to try it. Just spend five minutes at night journaling. Spend the first half of those five minutes just writing down the things that happened that day. They could be in seriously bullets and the positives that happened, the things you learned, the progress you made, the small wins you got. Just write those down and then write down the three most important wins you could get the next day. This practice alone would allow you to have a bigger future and a better past. The better past is by quantifying the past, by measuring each day as a gain, by measuring each day as a win, and just by putting some concrete terms around your past so that your past actually has some structure and form. And then just simply the night before, clarifying the three most important wins. These are these are important, not urgent. Urgent are like the meetings you have, getting to work, blah, blah, blah. Like that's not stuff you'd put on your list. You'd put down three important things that won't get done unless you're intentional about it, that won't get done unless you make the time, because if you don't make the time or create that time, and by the way, time does come from you. That's something that I love from the book, The Big Leap from Gay Hendricks. Dr. Dr. Joe Dispenza talks about this as well. The difference between Einstein time versus Newtonian time. Newtonian time is like viewing everything as cause and effect, that time is actually outside of you, whereas more of an Einstein perspective of time, more of that quantum physics, is viewing yourself as the cause of all effects outside of you, and that time itself is something that you create. It's your choice what you do with your time. If you feel like time is outside of you and you have that more Newtonian perspective, then you always feel a scarcity of time. You always feel like you don't have a lot of it. You don't know where all that time goes. Whereas if you embrace this more ownership of time, that time comes from you, then you can create as much time freedom as you want. You can really slow time down. That's also how you create massive progress. From an Einstein perspective, a time relativity perspective, the faster you travel through space, the slower time goes. So it's not about working harder. It's not even about working faster. It's about making distance. It's about distance covered. And often you actually have to slow things down in order to actually make progress. A lot of people, they're racing, but they're kind of on a hamster wheel. And so it does not matter how much effort or energy you put in. If you're not making any tangible distance towards your desired future self, then time is speeding up for you. If you really slow down, you can find a quick little wormhole or a slipstream. You can find a path, a relationship, a leverage point where you can make 10x, 20x, 100x the distance in very little effort, very little time. And so that's uh, one way of slowing time down dramatically. Just recognizing time comes from you. Today, how you live your life, the, the level of freedom and choice you have towards time is you. And once you start taking responsibility of your time, once you start taking responsibility of today, you can then start creating the results, the outcomes you want. It's quite beautiful. So that's routine number one. It's something that I would say is, I would argue this is even more important than morning journaling, is just taking those five minutes to list out your wins and then to decide and define your three for the next day. That allows you to go to bed. It allows you to allow your subconscious to work on it while you're asleep. There's that great quote from Thomas Edison, never go to bed without a request to your subconscious. By simply writing down the th three things you want to accomplish the next day, those important things, you've already now taken ownership of your time for tomorrow. You can also visualize yourself through the process, but also the completion and vi visualizing your future self right before going to bed. 
And then while you're asleep, your subconscious ultimately creates that reality. I love what Dr. Wayne Dyer said. He said, all of your life is based on what you think about. And becoming intentional and knowing that what you want is already yours is about turning your thoughts into the physical equivalent, turning your thoughts into physical form, whatever that is. If you want to start a business, if you want to see yourself in really healthy shape, if you want to see yourself in a loving relationship, if you want to see yourself in a certain position, if you want to see yourself in a certain destination, all you have to do is turn those thoughts into physical form. And what Wayne Dyer says is that it's really about having a willingness to do so. Are you willing to do what is required to get that? If you're willing, then you can have it. You can turn your thoughts into physical form. It's beautiful. There's a few great books on that subject just for reference. Obviously, everything Wayne Dyer has written. I love his book, The Power of Intention. The book, As a Man Thinketh from James Allen. Think and Grow Rich as another great one. Anything from Neville Goddard is very good. So the second routine is another form of journaling, and that's morning journaling pre-input. Uh, you could obviously listen to some audiobook, some music, a podcast, but this is pre uh, entertainment, I guess you could say the difference between, uh, education and entertainment pre unhealthy or reactive consumption. This is what is written about in the artist's way about just writing down three pages. This is what would be considered spiritual windshield wipers where you're just clearing the fog, wake up and just write down really subconsciously what's going on in your life. You could write down what happened yesterday. You could write down what you're dealing with. You could write down what you're thinking about. For example, I recently had an argument with my daughter. And so I would write that down. And, and interestingly, just by getting it on paper, you can start to get it outside of yourself and you can start to digest it in different forms. Again, the spiritual windshield wipers. If you don't just get it down and just get it out, then it's actually impacting you subconsciously. And so just simply by writing down in your journal a few pages in the morning, getting some initial thoughts out, but then I think directing your thoughts towards the day, towards your commitments, towards your future self, towards maybe your three-month goals, your six-month goals, your 12-month goals, your five-year goals, uh, taking time to get the subconscious just kind of blah out of your system, but then getting to the point where you start to clarify your future self, maybe clarifying what would be the most important thing you could do today, clarifying who you could reach out to, thinking about people you could love, think about people you could support. It's just a real, this is more of a creative rather than a reflective time. The evening five minute journaling is more of a reflection, but also a little bit of planning. This is more of a creation slash, you know, clearing and creating session. And what I have found in this in this routine or in this journaling session is that I get insane levels of inspiration. It could be on ideas that I'm trying to figure out that I then would teach to others. It could be something that I, someone I want to reach out to or something I could do. It, I mean, it could be anything, but I, I've found that taking this time to journal in the morning is where most of my creative inspiration, most of my visual inspiration, most of just the tactical inspiration, like reach out to this person, send that text, write that note. A lot of these ideas come simply by giving yourself the space. And you could do a little bit of pre-meditation before you do this activity. You could also pray if that's something you do is pray for inspiration, pray for the spirit, the guidance, whatever you want to do, um, meditate before. I actually have a pre pre-journaling routine as well. In the front cover of my journals, I have five questions. And these are kind of a pre-framing activity. Actually, Dr. Robert Cialdini wrote a book called Presuasion, and he talks about how when you see something, you see something and that influences what you see next. And so if, for example, you're told that someone's rude and then you then meet them, that, that's going to frame how you look at them and how you see them. So how you first experience something is influenced by what you first saw. And so I actually apply that 
in my journal. I have five questions that I look at. One is where am I right now? And I just have a bullet point list of where my life is at right now, what I'm working on, what, what I'm up to. Then I have a question that says, what are my wins from the last 90 days? And this just, again, allows me to quantify my past. It allows me to look back and say, what are the biggest forms of progress I've made in the last 90 days? The third question is, what are the most important wins for the next 90 days? These are just some bullets. As an example, near complete with the book 10X is easier than 2X, the book I'm currently writing. Uh, get on to you know 15 really great podcasts for my next book launch, Be Your Future Self Now. Get my next book collaboration in place, find new income streams, um, spend time with my kids. I mean, I'm, I've got, I didn't fully list them, but just clarifying some wins. Then I have, where do I see my future self in 12 months from now? And I just have the three biggest outcomes of where I wanna see my future self or where I do see my future self. And then I've got 36 months. Where's my future self three years from now? And again, three biggest outcomes. So those those clarifying questions, I just can look at those, review them, and that kind of pre-frames me for a great journaling session. It's just a, a beautiful experience. Those are, I would say, probably the two most fundamental. I think other routines would be to spend a lot of time reading or learning. I find that when I'm reading and, and consuming high quality stuff, it influences everything else I'm doing. When I'm when I'm just consuming like random media, whether that's social media, whether that's YouTube videos, whether that's like talk radio, whether that's news, whether that's just kind of more urgent, more low level information, it bleeds over into everything I'm doing. My creativity plummets. Again, garbage in, garbage out. Your input shapes your outlook. I'm just less clear. I'm less intentional because I'm not learning, because I'm not digesting, my brain's kind of decaying. And so I think if you're constantly consuming high quality information, that's really brilliant. So I would say that those are probably the three. Uh, obviously exercise, eating better. I love this quote from James Allen. He said that when you make your mind pure or when you make your thoughts pure, you'll no longer desire impure food. Like you'll no longer want to consume junk because you will have a different identity. You will stop seeing yourself as the kind of person who consumes that kind of junk food. I also like the thought that comes from Wayne Dyer where he talks about basically the idea that like the person you see yourself in on the inside is basically what's creating the manifestation of what's on the outside. So if like you see yourself as someone who's tired or someone who's old, what that means is, is that you have an old person living in your body and of course your body is gonna follow suit. If you see yourself as someone who's tired or someone who's stressed or someone who's frustrated, however you see yourself, that's basically the spirit or the soul or the thing on the inside that's ultimately gonna create your physical body and ultimately gonna create your life. And it's much better to actually see yourself as young, vibrant, and by young, you know, that's just a way of looking at it. You could say you see yourself as healthy, energetic, vibrant, learning, loving. Like, what's the kind of person on the inside of your body which is going to become manifested outside of your body? I think that those are some great, great concepts. And those are some routines that I, I believe if you applied more, you'd be a lot more intelligent, a lot more intentional. You'd sleep better. You'd have better health. You'd have better input. You'd have clear goals. You'd have clear steps. You're, you would own your time a lot more. Warner Earhart said that all change is linguistic. It's so simple yet so true that all transformation, all change is linguistic. It's language, it's how you speak because what you say determines the future that you're creating. In The Three Laws of Performance by Dr. David Logan, 
He talks about how we all have what he calls a default future. It's a future that we're driving for no matter what we want. It's not the future that we want or it's not the future we hope for. It's the default future that we're creating. And you can know what that default future is by simply listening to the language you use. Your words shape your perspective, which shape your behavior, which shapes the future that you create. In the book, The Magic of Thinking Big, Dr. David Schwartz said that you're either speaking castles into existence or you're speaking yourself into the grave. And I would say as a majority, if you listen to people's language, most people's language is descriptive of the present, not generative about the future. Dr. David Logans talks about generative language, which is language that shapes the future. If you listen to any visionary or any leader, they talk about the future that they're creating. Even recently in an interview with Elon Musk, he talks about the importance of having a positive future which you are creating and that the future is going to be great, the future can be bright. People who understand that the future is shaped by the language you use, understand the importance of using generative or more future-based, more creative language. Even in the book, Tiny Habits by Dr. BJ Fogg, he, he has a, a small habit he calls the Maui habit, which is that as soon as your feet get out of bed, because every day you get out of bed, as soon as your feet hit the floor, this is the idea of habit stacking, as soon as your feet hit the floor, you say, it's going to be a great day. That's what he calls the Maui habit. And that's using generative language because thoughts and language create momentum. As people, we are momentum-based beings. Really, back to David Schwartz, you're either speaking castles into existence or you're speaking yourself into the grave. If I was to follow you around for a full day and just listen to your words, I would know exactly what your default future is. Now, the only way you transform that default future is first off, you start imagining a different future and then you start speaking that future into existence. You start talking about that future. A few things happen when you start talking about what you want. Number one, you transform your identity because your identity literally is the story you tell about yourself. Your identity is what you're most committed to. And if you start telling people about a new future, if you start owning a new future, and also if you start believing that that future is yours. Part of believing the future that you want is to start talking about it. You start talking about it, and once you start talking about it, then your behavior starts following. There's a great quote, watch your thoughts, they become words, watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. It's not enough to just think about the future you want, you gotta write about it. Language is so powerful in written form. Writing about the, writing about the future you want, but then talking about it. Once you start talking about it, not in a nervous way, but with conviction, with acceptance, rather than being afraid to talk about the future you wanna create, start talking about the future. Watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. And so the language you use not only is a reflection of the future you're creating, but it's a reflection of the identity you have. And once you start using generative or future-based language, language about the future you want, you will start to have that identity. Another thing that happens is that language shapes your perspective. This goes back to the idea that your perception shapes your behavior and your behavior shapes your results, but it's the language that shapes the perception. In the book, The Three Laws of Performance, they talk about Helen Keller and about how she was deaf and blind, but once she learned Braille, in other words, once she started to have language, she began to feel human because with language comes thoughts and with language comes models or perspectives of reality. And with language, she actually began to have a past, a present and a future. So she said once she actually developed a language, she became a human and she was able to actually think and see. And so your language shapes your perspective. It shapes your view of the reality. It shapes your view of the world, but it also shapes what you see. This is why when it comes to clarifying your future self, there's a concept called auto-suggestion, which is basically using affirmations to speak into existence the future you want. Speaking exactly the future you want as though it is already yours 
As the quote from Florence Shin said, faith knows it has already received and acts accordingly. So you want to use your language to shape your perspective. You speak with affirmative about the future you want as though it's already yours, and then that changes your perspective. Auto-suggestion changes what you see. In psychology, they call it selective attention. That's why whenever you start to even think about and start to voice maybe that you want a new car, you'll start to see that car everywhere, or you'll start to notice things on the internet because you're now thinking about it and talking about it, and so now your subjective attention or your selective attention starts to see it. William James, the father of American psychology, said that there are millions of things going on in the world around you which you never pay attention to. You never notice, why? Because they're not important to you. Your experience is whatever you pay attention to. And what you pay attention to is what you're actively thinking about and talking about. And so as you start talking about certain things and using affirmative language towards certain things, you're gonna actually start to see them everywhere. And you're gonna start to generate pathways towards getting there. This is a big aspect of committing to your future self and actually starting to speak of your future self is that as you start speaking of your future self and your identity becomes immersed in that future and as you start getting committed, then you will start to see unique ways of getting there which were blind to you before but which were there all along. That concept is called inattentional blindness, that all around you are pathways and opportunities that are beyond, beyond anything you could ever imagine, but you can't see them because you're not, you're not committed to them. It's the idea that there are millions of gold coins all around you, but you're too busy focused on and looking for the bronze coins. There's another thing that's gonna happen here, and that it's going to change your behavior. As you start using more future-based language, more generative language, all transformation is linguistic. And so as you start speaking of the future you want, speaking castles into existence, being more bold and more affirmative and more powerful in your language, your behavior will change. This is what Dr. Robert Cialdini would call the principle of consistency. And it literally melds all of these ideas together. That as human beings, we have an innate desire to be consistent. We want our words, our identity, and our actions to be consistent with each other. And so whenever you say something, you then rearrange your identity to fit what you've said. And then you fit your behavior to fit your identity and your language. And so your language, your identity, and your behavior are all striving desperately to be in, in alignment with each other. And so obviously, if you start speaking of the future you want and speaking it with acceptance and commitment, then you will start to get committed because your identity is the language you tell. You'll start to see it more from a selective attention standpoint. And you'll start to act in alignment with your behavior because as people, we want to be consistent with what we've said. And also, as you start being more and more consistent with what you say, as you start speaking about what you will do, as you start making commitments about your future self and as you start speaking your future self into existence, as you start speaking castles into existence, and by the way, there's no end to the possibilities of this. You can stretch it out as far as you want. You can start imagining and creating very powerful realities and then finding pathways to getting there. And if you're committed, you will find a way. As the saying goes, the universe conspires to make it happen once you've made a decision. And so once you've made that decision and you start to speak about it, you will start to find ways to get it. Your behavior will follow your words and your actions and your identity, and you will find amazing ways to getting what you want. This is the simple reason why all transformation is linguistic, and that the, you, the words you use are very powerful, very important. My invitation to you is to be very thoughtful about the language you use. As a parent of six kids, I can openly admit that words have left my mouth that I wish I could take back, which have been very damaging and destructive to my own kids but also you can, you can use new words to heal old hurts. And it's so much more powerful to use generative language, future-based language, even for my kids, to talk about the amazing things that they're already doing. 
um, and to help them start to develop a vision for their own future selves and to affirm all the progress that they've already made. You can actually also use generative language about your past. You can always transform the meaning of your past. Your past is simply a story as well. And Dan Sullivan and I actually wrote a book called The Gap and the Gain, which is all about turning every experience in your life into a gain, about being in the gain about your own past, seeing your own growth, your own transformation, your own progress. And the great part about the past is, is that it's always reconstructed in the present. And so because you're always reconstructing the past and the present, you're always reconstructing a new past based on your new perspective. And you can proactively morph, transform, and build a beautiful past by creating meaning, growth, and value, choosing to see it from better perspectives. The more value you create in your experience, the more post-traumatic growth you have. And so maybe you look back at an experience that was hard, and you transform that through better language, through a better story. You really think, what was the value I got out of that? Because I had that experience, how am I better, not bitter? What can I now do? What do I now know that I didn't have? You actually are the one who builds in value into the experiences. You don't find value, you create value. And I've found, just an example, that even through my hardest failures, I can create as much value from those experiences as I want, and then I can share a better, more powerful, more empowering story of my own past, a more proactive, not reactive story. So the language you use about your past and your future is what ultimately shapes your perspective of reality. And as you start affirming the future you want, your identity and your behavior will align with your words. You'll start to see the world differently and you can create a very different life for yourself. Randy Posh said that one thing that makes it possible to be an optimist is if you have a contingency plan in place when all hell breaks loose. There's a lot of things I don't worry about because I have a plan in place if they do. This is basically encapsulated in an idea in psychology called implementation intentions. It's a simple idea, but it's how you can stop self-sabotaging. Every time you self-sabotage, it's because you step into a condition or an environment that then triggers you back into the habits of your former self. And it triggers you to acting impulsively and with emotion rather than with desire towards your future self. Let me give you an example. Every time I go home, it seems like I then immediately start craving junk food. It's like I step into that environment and all of a sudden I just wanna start eating bad food. And there is a lot of unhealthy food in that environment versus where I'm here right now at my work. I, come, I don't have any bad food at this environment. So it's very easy for me to eat clean and eat healthy for the first half of my day because I don't put any negative inputs in that environment. But when I go home, there's a little bit of different rules in that environment. You know, my wife's got six kids. It's actually, they eat a lot of good healthy foods, but there's a lot of food there that goes against how I would fully desire to eat. And so often when I go home, I'm triggered to eat a lot of bad food and often I do. Well, going back to implementation intentions and going back to Randy Posh's quote from the beginning, it's possible to be an optimist if you have a contingency plan in place for when all hell breaks loose. So what implementation intentions really means is you pre-plan for failures. You pre-plan the conditions when you know you're gonna self-sabotage. So for example, I know that when I go home, I'm gonna get triggered because your triggers and your identity often come from environments. That's why you're a different person in different situations. When you're around certain people, you get triggered to act a certain way. When you're in certain environments, you get triggered to act a certain way. And so I already know that when I go home, I'm triggered to eat bad food. I'm kind of already tired because I've woken up early. I've worked hard. I'm mentally fatigued. I'm physically fatigued. And so I go home and you know, in that environment, I just want to chill out. Well, you want a contingency plan. You want a failure safe plan. And that's where implementation intentions comes. And what you do with that is you say, if X, then Y. If I go home and I'm triggered, then what? You want a pre-planned condition. You want a pre-planned response. And so you want to plan 
for when you're gonna be triggered to self-sabotage. So recently I've got this really good whole food, like super food protein shake. And so now whenever I go home, I just, as soon as I go home, I just drink that protein shake and boom, the craving for bad food goes away because I've planned for failure. And so it's like, when I go home, then I'm gonna just drink that protein shake. When I'm triggered to eat junk food, I'm gonna go and do five push-ups or something. BJ Fogg in his book, Tiny Habits, actually calls this having a tiny habit formula or a tiny habit recipe. Basically, you attach a new habit to a habit you already have. So it's like if you wanna floss your teeth, well, you know you already brush, so you might as well just put the floss right next to the brush and attach or stack the habit onto one that already exists. It's hard to start a new habit off of nothing. It's a lot easier to attach a habit to a routine you already have in place. So I know I walk home. I know I step in that door and then I get triggered and I'm hungry. And so I've just attached a new habit to that, which is immediately go and drink this amazing health shake. And what's amazing is, is once you actually follow through on your failure plan. So for me, it's a failure plan. I step in, I go home and I drink my amazing protein shake. And because I watched myself use proactive behavior rather than reactive behavior, me getting triggered and eating a bunch of junk food when I get home is reactive to basically a goal conflicting environment. But when I go into that environment and by goal conflicting, I'm only talking purely about my health. <laughs> every, every other aspect of that environment is very generated towards my future self. But there's just certain foods that my, my wife and kids eat that don't align with my health goals. But now I, I've put the failure planning in place, so I'm not relying on willpower, I'm actually just relying on being intentional, having a plan, and following through with that plan. And what happens when you follow through with your plans? What happens when you follow through with your own commitments? You build confidence, you build self-trust. And so every time I go home and I drink that protein shake, I now have more confidence than I did before because I'm actually living intentionally. I'm living with honesty, self-honesty. And so self-honesty and self-commitment leads to a desire to make bigger commitments towards your future self. It allows you to actually create bigger and better commitments towards your future self. So that's the practical implementation intention is just having a failure plan in place, attaching a positive habit to a routine you already have in place. The second one is, is every time you win, actually celebrate. That's another thing that he talks about is that positive emotions actually create habits. And so if you celebrate the fact that you succeeded and you build confidence, you also want to identify as your future self, identify as someone who actually succeeds, who follows through, who keeps their commitments. And so your identity becomes more and more reinforced as someone who eats healthy, as someone who doesn't just get reactive to your triggers. So your identity changes towards your future self. And your behavior comes from, yes, your environment. It's triggered by your environment, but it's primarily driven by your identity and your identity within an environment, your identity within a context. And so if, if you go home and you start being someone better, for me, often I go home and because I then start binging on bad food, then I have this like internal conflict. It's called cognitive distance in psychology. And so then that lower confidence bleeds through in my relationship with my kids. So if I just go home and actually be who I want to be, be my future self now, actually follow through with my own goals rather than being reactive to a situation, then I can have way more confidence and I'm reinforcing a much better identity in that environment. And then I can actually be more aware, more mindful of my own kids rather than being caught up in my own frustration. So if you are constantly self-sabotaging, you're probably not being that present towards those you love because you're so in this state of internal conflict, internal regret, cognitive distance, 
And so you just got to put a plan in place and then follow through with that. And eventually the plan then becomes the pattern. It becomes the habit that's now it's like when I go home, I don't just walk through the door. I go and get a shake and I just drink something good because I know I'm hungry. So that is now part of the routine. And so you can extend a routine or you can stack habits. That's how it's done.